Amen. Hello, everyone. Hi. My name is Brian. I am Brian Williams. Uh, there's multiple Brians here, but uh, I'm the Williams. And uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm also the director of the Young Adults Ministry. Many of you know me, uh, or at least are aware of me. Um, but for those who don't, I always like to introduce myself. If it's your first time here, or you have just never seen me, and you're like, well, who's this joker? Well, hi, I'm Brian. <laughs> um, Tonight, we're continuing our series in Hebrews, and I actually, um, in preparing for this, I was trying to think of an illustration, trying to think of things that made sense, and, and you know, there's this one thing that maybe doesn't make any sense at all, but it did in my mind, so you're going to have to deal with it. All right. How many of you have ever been to camp? Anyone been to camp? Woo, camp. Yeah? Camp is great. Okay. I love camp. Camp is like in my blood now because I spent 10 years working at a camp and my job there at a place called Forest Home. Many of you maybe know Forest Home. Um, Woo, all right, yeah, okay. Uh, Forest Home, my job there was basically I was responsible for anything fun or dangerous. That was my job. It was a pretty sweet job. Um, also kind of had a lot of pressure at times because, you know, dangerous stuff is hard to deal with. But one of the things I was responsible for, because I'm responsible for anything fun, was this place called the Mud Bowl. It's exactly what you might be picturing, except not like a cereal bowl. It's actually a giant puddle, okay? (laughs) Like, just think a huge puddle. Um, Like the size of a pool, but it's like maybe knee deep. And this thing is just disgusting, there's no way around it. It's just super gross. Anyone been in the mud bowl at Forest Home? Or I think a lot of camps have like a mud bowl. It's like a traditional thing, right? And mud bowls are just gross. They're just gross. At least at Forest Home, it was pretty gross. Um, I'm pretty sure every camp, it's gross. So this thing, like you, you go there and like thousands of kids get through it. Like thousands, right? And, and they go in there and it's like knee deep of like muck and mud. And it's basically just stagnant water. It's just like a pond, and there's always like a plethora of, of band-aids just floating around, right? Like it's, it, you just, you can't help but see them. There's always some kid who like went in thinking socks would be a good idea, and that they came off right away, and you know, four weeks later, someone else finds them. And it's just this gross, disgusting thing. It kind of smells. It's just like, ugh, a mud bowl. Like, ugh, it's kind of gross. Now, I I never went to the mud bowl thinking, yes, I get to go in this. Like that was just never what was in my mind. I never was excited about the mud bowl. But what I care deeply about, what matters a lot to me is the camp experience. I love camp. I love what it does for for people to to get into a a new environment, a place where they just throw off inhibition in like, you know, great ways, Um, not bad ways, hopefully. And get to, get to just truly live, to, to embrace that like childlikeness, that playfulness, that just like, I mean, what do you do at the mud bowl? But like, just play in the mud. Yet somehow there's something so special about it. There's something so like wonderful and freeing and just like simple fun to just be like mud. Like, it's so fun. I love the mud bowl and I loathe it. <laughs> I never went to the mud bowl excited to go in, but I always went in. I'd get there, you know, and I'd be like knee deep or whatever. And it's like, all right, like it always takes one, just takes one person being the first to like commit to like go for this thing. 
And being, you know, it's my job, fun. So camp experience, care about this. I need to go first. I need to like commit and show people what it's like to just let go of how gross this is. And so I just make the choice. I just go for it. And you can't go halfway. You can't like, okay, I'm slowly going to get into this mud and play it. Like, no, you have to just do it or you're not going to do it at all. And so I'd always just go for like the belly flop or something, you know, just like, let's do it. <laughs> you know, and you come up with like mud all over your face. It's in your teeth. It gets in your ears. It gets everywhere. But the thing is, as soon as you make that choice, as soon as I made that choice, I was released. <laughs> I was free to love the mud bowl. <laughs> to just enjoy all that the mud bowl had to offer. And I'd go tackling people. You go throwing mud at people. You, you, everybody's wrestling and flopping around and just like sitting there. And it's just this simple childlike fun that's just so wonderful and so freeing. It's so wonderful, but all it took was me making that choice. If it wasn't for making that choice, I would never have enjoyed it. To enjoy it, I had to choose it. I had to cherish the camp experience for the sake of all these campers, even for myself or for the staff we were with. I had to cherish that thing of this camp experience of that just letting go over like how gross this is. <laughs> like, it's just gross, man. It's super gross. And thankfully, I don't like, you know, I probably got some like infected cuts or something, but I never got anything serious, uh, which is great, at least that I know of. But I had to make the choice. And when I did, I was released, released to truly enjoy. But it took making the choice. Now, as we come into tonight's passage, we will be encouraged to, to value the better things, to enjoy them, to experience the joy of reverent worship. And this section tonight kind of goes around and about to get to where we're going. But really, this whole letter the book of Hebrews, this letter of Hebrews, was, was written uh, as like this adventure in exploring the, the depth of Jesus' role and fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the writer has altered along the way between like warning and revelation of confrontation and comfort. And as we pick up in chapter 12, verse 18, we are coming out of a warning and Brian Howard preached on this last week. And, and if you're here, you may remember that the, the author of Hebrews issued this chilling warning. He said, do not be like Esau, who squandered his birthright and could do nothing to get rid of the consequences. He couldn't undo the consequences. He squandered his birthright and he could not undo the consequences of that. See, Esau, who did not cherish this privilege this privileged position that he had as the eldest son, the blessing of the eldest son. Because he did not cherish it, he did not experience the magnificence of it. He did not experience the joy of his advantage as the eldest son. So our first point here, really the main point, is that to enjoy something, you must first cherish it. To enjoy something, you must first cherish cherish it. You know, I cherish the camp experience. What it does in a person's life, what it did in my own life, it draws out that childlike wonder, the playfulness of it all. It's just so life-giving and memorable and shaping. 
And so I embraced the mud bowl time and time again because I longed to unlock the joy of it. And that meant making a choice. I believe for many of us here tonight, myself included, as as we come to this passage tonight, which aims to comfort us with, with the privilege of our position in Jesus, that comfort that it's aiming for And the joy of our salvation, the the exuberance of our worship offered is somehow disjointed. You come in and somehow it doesn't align. Or maybe you go out and somehow it doesn't align as you leave this place. It just seems to not quite fit. Where is the joy? Where's the delight? We long for it. You want it. You want it. But you're like, where? Where? Why, why am I not seeing it? Why am I not experiencing it? It's because we haven't yet cherished what we've been given. Possibly. It's one option. But that's the one we're talking about tonight. So buckle up, I guess. So to enjoy something, you must first cherish it. And God's clear intent is that we would enjoy him. That's God's clear intent. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to delight in him. Our highest good and God's greatest glory comes through our delight in him. Say that again. Our highest good and God's greatest glory comes about through our delight in him. It's what he wants for us. It's what we ultimately all desire too. You know, I have kids. I have kids. I have two kids, um, a son named Isaac and a daughter named Ellie, and I'm going to bring them up. And so there's no way it would it'd probably be like irresponsible of me to not take the opportunity to show hundreds of people some beautiful pictures of my kids. So uh, first, this is Ellie. Um, a few weeks ago, we, um, you know, Valentine's Day. So we got a bunch of strawberries. She got this giant one. Our kids love strawberries. I love strawberries, too. She got this giant one, and then here's her, you know, finally getting to the glory of the strawberry, just biting into that thing. She's a sweet little girl, and of course, you know, I like text my wife, I'm like, hey, what picture should she show? And it's like this one from earlier this week that is just like angelic. There's no other way to get around it. She's just right. Oh my gosh. She's so wonderful. Photo credit Amy Williams. Um, Got the flare in there and everything. It's beautiful, crushing it. That's my daughter, Ellie. She's 15 months and she's awesome. Next, this is my son, Isaac. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, a neighbor gave him some rollerblades. And so he's like, you know, going like this around the grass. He's like, look at me, daddy, I'm rollerblading. And you're like, yeah, kind of. Cute kid. You know, here's one with strawberries too. Valentine's Day was fun. We like to chocolate dip strawberries and stuff. Isaac turns three tomorrow. It's his birthday. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. I would, I would say what we're going to give him, but he might be watching. I don't know. And then, you know, ruin the surprise. Anyway, so that's my kids. I love my kids, right? Of course. I can't. How can I not? I have to. I'm obligated. That's kind of what we're talking about, really. As I see in these short three years of being a parent, I have seen and I'm dealing with, wrestling with, that there is a distinct difference between parenting out of responsibility and parenting to cherish them. 
There's a distinct difference between those two things. The fruit of parenting out of responsibility grows out of my perspective about what I'm doing, my desires, or what I'm cherishing. And, and ultimately, it's the view that I see them as some sort of obstacle, as some sort of obligation. My kids are an obligation. There's some sort of an obstacle. That's something that I think, uh, unfortunately, I, uh, I fall prey to that way more often than I wish were true. I fall into that way more often than I desire to be the case. And I know many of you have experienced the fruit of that choice. The pain of being the child on the other end of that. Being the one who seems to be the obstacle. Seems to be the obligation. Yet the fruit on the other side. The fruit of parenting to cherish them. Is delight. It's enjoyment of them. To cherish is to value, to prize, to adore. And when I'm just trying to get through this tantrum, (laughs) I'm just trying to get through this thing. I'm just trying to get through this discipline or this moment where you want my attention. Okay, I get it. (laughs) Like when I'm just trying to get through that, you've asked me to play with you. I'm just trying to get through it so that I can get to the thing I really want to do. That shows what I'm truly cherishing. I'm cherishing myself, not them. And ultimately in me, within me, the fruit of that choice is a waning delight in how wonderful they are. A waning delight in what a gift they are and all the beauty and good that is there. I even end up missing the reality that I don't know what tomorrow holds. That what I have today might not be here tomorrow. To cherish them, to cherish Isaac and Ellie, to value them over these trivial things. They're so trivial. It's a choice. It's an actual choice that I'm confronted with over and over. It is an actionable item. It's not based on feelings, but it leads to feelings. I'll say that again. It is an actionable thing. <laughs> Item. Thank you, Sarah. All right, right on. <laughs> it's an actionable item. It is not based on feelings, but it leads to feelings. To cherish someone is a choice. You get to choose what you will cherish. And that will impact the degree to which you enjoy it. As I make the choice to cherish Isaac's desire for me to play in the sand with him, when I cherish that, when I cherish him over keeping my shoes sand free, it actually releases me to enjoy him, to delight in him, to rejoice in what God has given me in this wonderful son of mine. To cherish my daughter and stare into her eyes and make the same noise and face over and over and over and over again. To do it again and again and again and again. When I cherish her, when I choose that unproductive, repetitive action, because it means being with her, I get to actually delight in her. To choose that over like 
organizing the workbench in the garage. Or like to choose that over, you know, I wonder how much new forks for my bike would be. (laughs) Man, what trivial things to choose over delighting in my daughter. To cherish such silly things over this opportunity to see this beautiful little girl and make silly faces with her. It changes from, man, she's just doing this over and over again and really wants me to keep doing it. I wonder when this will end. Hopefully soon. Instead of that, it goes to, this is wonderful. You're so, you're so silly. You're such a sweet girl. I'm so glad that you want to look into my eyes. I'm so glad that you enjoy my attention. I get to delight in it. But it comes through choosing. When I choose her over that unimportant, unurgent stuff, it actually releases me to enjoy her and delight in her. If you want a perspective on God that consists of the abundant life that Jesus calls us to, a life that releases joy and delight and gratitude in him, start cherishing him over other things. Start choosing him over other things. To cherish something is to value it in such a way that you choose it. So start choosing him. This is so important. Because as we move uh, through our passage, what comes about is a contrast between what was and what we now have. It's aimed at showing us the privilege we have been given in Christ. This incredible privilege. We are called not to cherish, to value some woeful, ominous thing, but a privileged position in the family and community of God. Like when, when the kids are in the midst of a tantrum, it's harder to cherish them. It just is. It's harder than when they look you in the eyes and are like, I love you, Daddy. It's, real, it's much easier to cherish them in that moment. The mud bowl. It's way harder to cherish the mud bowl and its impact on the camp experience than it is to cherish the zip line or the blob at the lake. They get all the glory, man. They get all the glory. It's easier to cherish one, or the other, one over the other. And what the author is going to be driving at is that we, all of us, have been given the easy route to cherishing God. We've not been offered some woeful, ominous thing, but a privileged position that if embraced, yields a fruit of joy and worship and delight that honors God, that fills your soul and displays to the world, come and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he is good, because I have, and man is he. The author sets up this contrast that will highlight our advantageous position. He takes A few sentences to unfold it, so be patient here. Here we go. Hebrews 12, verse 18. You, speaking to the people he's writing, and we can take on that same position, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. You've not come to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So what what are we talking about here? Well, 
about 1,500 years before this letter, the letter of Hebrews, was written, there was another document called the Exodus. And in it is the story of the Mosaic Covenant, of the agreement between God and the Israelite people at Mount Sinai. An agreement, a covenant that is flushed out really in full in the book of Deuteronomy. These are all Old Testament, really right at the beginning. In Exodus 19, we read about the, the moment that this covenant was given or, or initiated and, and that God spoke from Mount Sinai to the people and they were straight up terrified by it. So much so that they just asked Moses, like, how about you just talk to God? Like, how about you just do that and then uh, get back to us? Because <laughs> that was terrifying. <laughs> it's too much. I can't handle it. It's too much. That is overwhelming. What if I screw it up? Oh, I can't, you know, I just, I'd rather just not be in this situation. So how about you deal with it and then report back to me? Tell me what to do. And so they punted. They just gave up and missed out on the sanctification of conversation with God himself. Their invitation to cherish God was a lot harder to accept than ours is. Their invitation to cherish God was intimidating, scary. Even Moses shook with fear. And, and that is why our privilege, all of our heightened, elevated, beautiful privilege that we have is that our encounter with God is through Jesus. He continues in verse 22, but you have come, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels singing in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, our encounter... Our invitation to know God comes through Jesus rather than through Mount Sinai. It comes through faith in the love, mercy, and grace that is manifest in Jesus himself. We are called to shoulder the yoke of Jesus, which is light, which is easy. And this is a privileged position. In our obvious weakness and utter dependence upon the mercy and grace of God, which the Mosaic Covenant made crystal clear that we are weak and dependent upon God's patience and forbearance and his forgiveness. Mount Sinai made that really clear. But Jesus is the unrevoked promise that God gives mercy and grace in abundance. And so we have what they did not the image of God, Jesus Christ, we are privileged. We are so privileged. In verse 23, it says, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. If you remember uh, chapter 11, the hall of faith, we have this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on who have gone before us. And they longed to see what we have seen, to know what we now know, which is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's not all. We are a church full of firstborn. 
And that has nothing to do with like your family order. I'm the youngest actually in my family. So that's, that's not what they're really talking about. This is like a metaphor or something. Is that the right use of the word metaphor? I think so. This is a metaphor about the privilege that is bestowed upon us. That we all, all of us, receive the full inheritance, the full blessing. There's no partiality or partial blessing. We've been reassigned, upgraded to share in Jesus' inheritance, an inheritance we are not hardly worthy of. Continues on, it says, You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This thing that we're called into, the opportunity we have is unshakable. Our names are written in eternity right alongside those of Hebrews 11. All those great people of faith. And this is decided upon. This, this entry into heaven, this authoritative stamp is decided upon by God who is judge over all. There is no one beyond him to overrule what he says. Maybe you don't, maybe like people think when we talk about God and we say like he is king, he is Lord of lords, like he is above all. To recognize that that means there's literally no one who can contradict him or overrule him. That what he says is. What he says is, it's true. So if he's decided something about you, it's reality. If Jesus has come and said such a wonderful thing about us, said, you are my friends, well, it's true. <laughs> we can't go and say, no, no, he's a liar. <laughs> like, that's not true. He doesn't treat me very well. Who can contradict God? So if he declares us righteous in Jesus, if he says you are holy and set apart, that you are priests, that is what we are. There's no one who can contradict him. And that is worth cherishing. See, we've all failed. We've all failed and fallen short of the will of God. Or to put it another way, we've all uh, not lived up to God's ethics. And no matter how much good we do or how hard we try, imperfect will always be imperfect. Imperfect will always be imperfect. And this was a, a partial function of the Mosaic Covenant, of what was handed down in Mount Sinai, was to reveal humanity's helplessness. Bummer. That's the worst, right? You're like, I got a sweet water bottle, now it's got like a big dent. And you're like, dang it. You set it down, it like wobbles. Like, I hope not. Whoever that was, I apologize. Man, there was only one way out for us, for any of us, for humanity, and God put it into motion at great cost and suffering to himself. See, Jesus, God in the flesh, humbled himself, being made in human likeness, becoming in very nature a servant, and willingly, innocently suffering, dying on the cross, so that humanity's imperfection, humanity's sin may be atoned for. And this forgiveness is given not because we asked for it, but because God so loved us that he desired to give it to us. He wanted to give it, and so he did. 
beautifully, it didn't end there with Jesus' death either. Days later, Jesus rose from the dead, verifying his deity and paving the way for us to one day follow in his footsteps. His blood shed on the cross is our salvation. And his victory over death is our hope. Where Abel's blood cried out from the ground when his brother Cain murdered him. And it resulted in condemnation. It's the book of Genesis. Check it out. Jesus' blood poured out and brought salvation to all who would receive him. Jesus' blood poured out did not bring condemnation but redemption. What freedom and joy there is to be found in that marvelous reality. That I am no longer a slave to fear and failure. That all my insecurity is compensated by the strength and promises of God Almighty. What a blessing. What a wonderful thing. That God's grace is sufficient for me. That God's grace is sufficient for you. And his power is made perfect in your weakness. This reality ought to like enrapture us. I think we often think of joy as like you have to be like, I don't know, doing jumping jacks or something. Or like, I'm joyful. Like, yes. And maybe for some people, like some people, that's how it works, you know. But for other people, it's like, it's just a heavy sigh. (sighs) And like a soft smile. I think there's place in our lives and in God's kingdom for both. But the real question isn't what your joy looks like. It's do you have it? Do you have it? Do you delight in what God has given you and what Jesus has done for us on the cross? I mean, all the angels are singing like crazy about it. How much more should we cherish it? Should we delight in it? I mean, it's for our sake, not theirs. And yet they sing unendingly going, this is good. And it's for our sake, man. We have all the reason in the world to cherish it, to delight in what Jesus has done for us and the incredible privilege that we've been given. Continues in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not, and that's speaking about Mount Sinai, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Saying, look, don't be like Esau who spurned his privileged position and lost out on the delight of its blessings. Don't be like the Israelites who who trembled at the base of the mountain yet turned their back on the one who spoke from it. How much greater would our missing out be if we failed to respond to the compelling warning given by Jesus who conquered death, who promises to uproot everything that corrupts, anything that contradicts heaven's simple perfection. What a wonderful promise that is too. Verse 26 talks more about that. At that time, it's talking about Sinai. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things, so what cannot be shaken may remain. See, Jesus has told us quite plainly, the earth has been shaken, 
has been sifted, and one day he'll also rock the heavens. I really love uh, how Eugene Peterson puts it. He, he says it this way, one last shaking from top to bottom, stem to stern. This means a thorough house cleaning, getting rid of all the, the historical and religious junk, all the stuff that really doesn't matter. Eugene Peterson writes this, he says, so that the unshakable essentials can stand clear and uncluttered. I just love that. He's getting rid of all the things that truly don't matter. He's going to shake it all out so that the unshakable essentials stand clear and uncluttered. My desire is to see and value those unshakable essentials more and more. Knowing that one day God will clean house and toss aside those thoughts, those arguments, those tasks, those desires that I mistook for heavenly. He'll fix me up. He'll fix me up so I can see clearly things as they are. And he'll do the same for all of society, for all of humanity, and all of Christianity, all of Christendom. And those things that were just religious, not actually godly, will be shown for what they are. Those things that are political, not actually godly, will be shown for what they are. Those distractions that somehow seemed so vital in the moment. The boundary line that was drawn with more opinion than truth or more pride than love. It'll all be rattled away so that what is truly valuable will remain. So why cherish anything over God himself? Why cherish anything over God himself? Why squander our efforts in limited days on trivial matters? How comforting it is to know that there is a right way to go and a right thing to do, that one day all the chaff will be blown away and we'll clearly see what really matters. Our choices should sow our life, our passions, our attention into the essentials, into those things that are unshakable and eternal, into those things that are worth cherishing. One of which is the mercy and grace of God, which is so clearly demonstrated in Jesus. And what a comfort that is. What a comfort that is to all of us, or should be to all of us. That my desire to please him does in fact please him. And that though I long to be complete in him, though I desire to do it rightly, to not get mixed up in these religious things that aren't actually godly or political things that aren't actually godly or trivial things that really just burn up time that I have so little of. However much I desire to do that, I recognize that I, I'm not, I'm imperfect. But I can rest assured, I can rest assured that my shortcomings, my, the things that I can't get down just right, the things that I'm even ignorant of won't cost me God's affections. And they won't cost you God's affections either. Because he'd said something about you. And nobody's higher than him. Nobody can overrule him. So we ought to reorder our lives. We ought to calibrate our affections and cherish him above all else. And in so doing, we can delight in the freedom of what truly matters. Like popularity, that's overrated. 
Wealth, temporary. Comfort, insignificant. Superiority over another human, fictitious. Political power, deceptive. Like most things. It doesn't mean they're not valuable. It doesn't mean they don't matter. It just means they shouldn't be higher than him. It's like organizing my workbench over staring in my daughter's eyes. Sure, my workbench needs organizing. But her eyes, her heart is way more valuable. I mean, even things like fear of missing out. Like (laughs) how many things we go to that are so trivial and we choose them over the one who's not in any way trivial, not in any way weak, not in any way worthless, but in every way is everything we should desire and need. I, I think of like how often it's almost like, this is not a complete thought, but we'll get there. <laughs> it's like my son Isaac. I love the kid. But sometimes he just doesn't get it, right? Like he just doesn't get it. Earlier, I think uh, two weeks ago, Jeremy preached out of earlier in, in chapter 12 where it talks about the, the, the discipline of the father, that, that God disciplines those he loves, that God cares for and directs and guides those he loves. Like Isaac, he loves blankets, like fluffy, soft blankets. They're great. But you know what's the like absolute enemy of fluffy, soft blankets and the coziness that they can provide? Wood chips. Right? Like you put a fluffy, really soft blanket in wood chips, and now that's just a spiky, splintery, like robe of death. It's like terrible. You're like, oh, oh, I don't like this. And so, like, my son, who I, he asked, Daddy, can I have uh, my blanket? Right? Oh, yeah, sure, I'll go get your blanket. And I come outside, and I'm like, here's your blanket. And I'm, you know, on the cement, I'm right here. And, he, and he's like, screaming for me to bring his blanket. And it's like, I want you to have the blanket. I want you to have it. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to be wrapped up in it and all the coziness. Just, just come over here. Just come over here, Isaac. But he gets so lost in, in not wanting to come where I am that he doesn't recognize what he's missing out on. And ultimately, he doesn't get to cherish the beauty of that wonderful blanket, you know, especially when he then just grabs it and pulls in the wood chips and then it's like, oh gosh. <laughs> but how often we do that with God. We sit on the sideline and we say, God, I want to love you. I want fill me. You know that song we sung at the very beginning? Fill me, Lord, fill me. And God's like, okay, I want to. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's do this. Yes. Come over here. And we say, no, fill me where I am. And he's like, just, just come over here. Like, I have so much good to give you. Just, just come over here. Because we cherish these foolish, trivial things over him. The simplicity of the unshakable is that it all comes down to Jesus. The simplicity of the, of the unshakable is that it all comes down to Jesus. He is worth cherishing. 
You know, first and foremost, love God with everything you've got. And second is love those he loves, a.k.a. live in love like Jesus. That's kind of like our tagline around here. Live in love like Jesus. Be present in the moment. Care for others and make time and mental real estate to be with and to walk with God. Cherish him. Choose him. And the joy of your salvation will steadily grow. Verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Our God is a consuming fire. Again, Eugene Peterson, he writes this, Do you see what we've got? (laughs) It's that simple. That's what he writes. (laughs) It's just a rhetorical question. Do you see what we've got? Like, it's real good. (laughs) Like, what else, what other choice can we make? It's an unshakable kingdom. That is what we've been given. That is what we've been bestowed. That is what we are inheriting. An unshakable kingdom. Do you see how thankful we must be? We ought to be not only thankful, but brimming with worship. Deeply reverent before God, for God is not an indifferent bystander. He's actively cleaning house. He's torching all that needs to burn, and he won't quit until it's cleansed. See, God is doing a good work, and you're invited to be a part of it. Piper, reflecting on verse 29, God, our, consuming, our God is a consuming fire. He asks this question, and it's a good one. Is this final motivation done out of fear. Our God is a consuming fire. He continues, well, it depends. If you trust the promise of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, then the fire of God will consume that which opposes you. It will refine you as fire refines gold, and it will deliver you from what once bound you. But if you reject the one who speaks from heaven and like Esau prefer the fragile, shaky kingdom of this world, then you will meet the consuming fire of God as destruction, not deliverance. So listen to the voice of God who speaks by the blood of Jesus and says so clearly, I will forgive you. I will forgive you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will give you an unshakable home and I will always be there for you if you trust me. So trust me. If you want a perspective on God that prioritizes or releases joy and delight and gratitude for him, then start cherishing him over other things. Start choosing him over other things. Because to cherish something is to value it in such a way that you choose it. So choose him. Trust him. It will yield a life filled with unshakable things and abundant joy. Band, if you guys want to make your way up. As we uh, move into this time of worship, as we close out the service with, with two songs or maybe more, I don't know, eight twelve, kind of early. Uh, as we respond to God here, to choose him and cherish him, the song we're going to sing reflects that choice, that choice that we make. 
It's an it's a new old song kind of. It's like an old song, but it's probably new in here, or at least we haven't done it in here. But many of you probably know it. And the lyrics are, are an, an acknowledgement that in light of the privilege we have been given by Jesus, the salvation and hope he has delivered unto us, in light of that, it says, what could I say? What could I do? But offer this heart, O oh God, completely to you. What could I say? What could I do? What can I do in light of all this except offer my whole heart to you, Lord? What other response do we have but to love him with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul? And so I call you now, all of us, to choose him. Bring yourself before God, the Lord of all creation, and choose him. Trust him, yield to him, and delight in him. Let these lyrics of this song lead you. Sing along if need be. Stand, sit silently, kneel and surrender. Whatever it takes, choose him. Whatever it takes, choose him. And learn the joy of your salvation. Embrace the good he desires for you. And see what he'll do with it, not just in your life, but within this whole world. He has good plans for you. If only we'll choose him. Let's sing.